Turn in your Bibles again, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. <clears throat> so we continue to make our way through this gospel. Did you ever notice that sometimes those who have seen the most say the least? Perhaps they, it's because the things they saw were so terrible they can't stand to think about them again. Perhaps they were so awe-inspiring that words never seemed to be enough. For whatever reason, it just seems to be the case that those who have seen the most often say the least. That's what happens in our text today. Here, three of the disciples saw things beyond our imagination. But the account closes by saying that they told no one. Not anytime soon. Only years later, after much reflection, were they able to talk about the things they saw that day on the mountain. So let's read this remarkable account and consider what it has to teach us. We're going to pick up with verse 27, which in my translation at least, is a part of a different paragraph, a different section than the rest of the text, but I still think it fits together. So 27 through 36, Jesus is speaking. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to them, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. This is a difficult passage to quite know how to preach. It has lots of problems. But let me try to uh, hang it on two truths. And it doesn't always hang perfectly, but we'll try. Okay, the first is this. The whole Bible points us to Jesus. The whole Bible points us to Jesus. You know, we have a tendency to treat the Bible differently than God intended. As children, we tend to think of the Bible as a collection of stories. As, as, as other ch collections of children's stories. Later, we may just see it as a record of history, perhaps even boring history of Israel and of the church. But these days, in the church in America at least, we tend to hear the Bible treated as a how-to manual. How to make your marriage better. How to have greater purpose in your life. 
how to manage your finances, how to resolve conflicts, etc., etc. But what even Christians often miss is that God's word is really an unfolding of God's plans which all come to a focus, come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is pointing us to Jesus. This particular passage is a good example. Because of the way Christians read the Bible these days, when people read this account, or when we hear sermons about this account, we, we, we tend to psychologize it. Fred Craddock takes note of that when he says, Who has not heard interpretations of the transfiguration joined with the following story of the healing of the boy that offered a mountaintop experience followed by the admission to come down into the valley of service? Perhaps you've heard those kind of sermons. Sometimes you have great mountaintop spiritual experiences, but you can't stay on the mountain. You've got to come down and face the suffering of real people and serve the Lord in the valley. This passage has nothing to do with such things. It has nothing to do with our spiritual mountaintop experiences. It is telling us about God's eternal plan, which finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we face in this is the part that doesn't quite fit anywhere, but we have to talk about it. It's a problem in this text. And that is the way this transfiguration account is introduced to us. Look at verse seven, 27, that, that verse that is kind of before where it probably says the transfiguration in your Bible. Here Jesus said, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What's that talking about? It sounds like a reference to Christ's second coming. To the fullness of his kingdom at the end of time. And many believers in the New Testament era, uh, New Testament times, expected just that. That Jesus would return in their lifetime and all things would be restored and uh, they would see it. But we know that didn't happened that way. This was written decades after Jesus' words were spoken and some of the disciples were already gone and Jesus had still not returned. And kingdom had not been established like they expected and like it will be at the end of time. So what is it talking about? Well, there's another possibility because some great things did happen in the first century. While some of the apostles were still living in 70 AD, judgment came upon unbelieving Israel as the Romans invaded Jerusalem and tore down the temple and slaughtered the people, destroyed and burned the city. Norval Geldenheis describes the significance of that event. Let me quote. In an unparalleled manner, God revealed his kingly dominion over the unbelieving Jewish nation in that execution of judgment. By these means he showed once and for all that the old dispensation had passed away and that the new dispensation had indeed begun, that the ceremonial temple religion had completed its preparatory task, and that the old chosen people had to make room for the new people, the true Israel, the members Jewish and Gentile of the Church of Christ. That event revealed the kingdom of God 
and his dominion in the history of man in an incomparable manner. And of course, those events in 70 AD were accompanied by lots of other events that took place in those same uh, uh, decades of the early century. Uh, the gospel uh, of Jesus was transforming the landscape of the world. People from every tribe and nation were becoming citizens of the kingdom of God. Though Jesus' return remained future, future uh, 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 all of these things happened in the first century. Is that what Jesus was talking about? Perhaps. Some of you standing here will not die before you see it. But Luke seems to believe that that promise of verse 27 was fulfilled in some way in the transfiguration. Verse 27, he records Jesus' promise. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom. Next verse, verse 28, he introduces the events of the transfiguration. About eight days later, after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John with him, James and John with him up in the mountain praying, and as he was praying, he was transfigured before their eyes. It seems like that what we have here is the apostles, a handful of apostles, for a few moments, get a glimpse of the glory, caught sight of the things that are beginning to unfold in the world and will unfold completely by the end of time, got a peek at the coming of the kingdom of Jesus, which was only beginning but will, will reach its consummation when he returns, as Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. They saw in a moment the reality to which all God's promises and all God's work, indeed all the contents of God's word, had been pointing all along. They saw Jesus in his glory, the fulfillment of it all. Now moving on from that, we see more clearly how this event fulfills the things God has spoken in his word by, by looking at some of the details of what happened. Several details here, let me just mention. First notice that <clears throat> Jesus went up on this mountain, just like Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the book of the covenant in Exodus 24. And there on the mountain, the cloud of God's Shekinah glory covered him just as it had covered Moses as as is recorded in Exodus 25. There we read, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. You see, Moses' experience was foreshadowing what happened to Jesus. For the whole Bible points us to Jesus. Then notice the change of Jesus' appearance. He was transfigured before the eyes of his watching apostles. Just like the face of Moses had shined when he came down from the mountain. You remember that incident? We read about it in Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses, when he spoke face to face with the Lord, his face began to shine so much that he had to cover his face when he came down. Jesus, there on a mountain, glows, becomes illuminated like a flash of lightning 
Jesus is not mimicking Moses. Moses experienced foreshadowed the glory of Jesus for the whole Bible points us to Jesus. Then notice another Old Testament connection. Moses and Elijah appeared there on the mountain with Jesus. Now Moses and Elijah um, were both figures of some importance in the Old Testament. They both pointed to the coming Messiah in a, in a very specific way. In Deuteronomy 18, God promised to send a prophet like Moses. Remember, we, we read here that nobody like Moses had ever appeared. But in Deuteronomy 18, God said, I'm going to send one that's like Moses, another prophet, and you better listen to him. In Acts, we learn Jesus is the one who fulfilled that promise. And in Malachi 3, God promised that one like Elijah would come as a forerunner to the Messiah's coming. Jesus tells us John the Baptist did that. So it made sense that Moses and Elijah, who both had in their ministries very specifically said things that forecast the coming of Jesus, that they should stand there on the mountain with Jesus, to whom their ministries had pointed, along with the rest of the Bible, that all points us to Jesus. Perhaps the most telling Old Testament connection here, though, is one we might miss. Notice what Moses and Elijah talked about with Jesus. It said they talked about his departure, which was to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Actually, the Greek word for departure is exodus. They talked about Jesus' exodus about to be fulfilled. Now, the Old Testament, the exodus is the central event of the whole Old Testament. It's a time when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's a time when God miraculously brought them through the Red Sea and, and freed them from certain death. That exodus was the great Old Testament example of God's salvation. And now on the mountain, Jesus is talking about his exodus. About the fullness of salvation, about the true deliverance. Not just from Egypt, but from sin and death and judgment of which the exodus out of Egypt was only a poor picture. Jesus has finally come to bring the reality, the real exodus. All that was just the Bible pointing to Jesus. Oh dear people, don't misunderstand God's word. It's purpose for you. It's not a how-to book on living a successful, happy life, though it tells us lots of things about living. It's not a collection of spiritual energy packs to give you a little surge of religious fervor when you need it. It's not a rule book, a checklist of things we better do to get God's favor. Now, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. Every part of it tells us about him and everything God has done and everything God has said and every promise God has made. Indeed, everything in the whole Bible is pointing us to the one who the disciples saw in his glory there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It points us to Jesus. Which brings us to the second thing we ought to learn from this text. God demands that we listen to his son. God demands that we listen to his son. In case you haven't noticed, there's no shortage of spirituality around these days. 
All kinds of people are having spiritual experiences. All kinds of people are discovering ways to get in touch with the supernatural. All kinds of people are claiming to hear God speaking to them in various ways. In fact, we live in one of the most spiritual times and certainly in the most spiritual area of our nation ever. But it has nothing to do with Jesus. Indeed, many of the most spiritual people overtly reject Jesus or best consider him no different than you or me. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, we learn that God demands that we listen to his Son. First note that Jesus is indeed the divine Son. The apostles saw the glory of God shine through Jesus. The appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's the same picture we read in the book of Revelation of Jesus and his glory. And then with audible words, God attested to the identity of Jesus as his own son. Just as he said at Jesus' baptism, you are my son whom I loved, with you am I well pleased. Now he says again in, that, in another audible voice, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. If God affirms Jesus' deity, his divine sonship, then we must listen. That's the argument we find in the book of Hebrews. It starts off saying that God has spoken in his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And then as we go through the book, we get to the end. It says, therefore, you had best not, uh, 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 you had best not refuse him who speaks to you from heaven, talking about Jesus. God demands that we listen to his son as we would listen to him. Now that raises an important question. Listen to him concerning what? Well, everything, obviously. But there's something specifically on on the agenda here. God demands that we listen to Jesus concerning his suffering and death. In the context here, the apostles had just heard Jesus' announcement of his suffering and death and the necessity that they follow him into this uh, pit of rejection and suffering and death, follow him to the cross. Now all of that flew in the face of everything they thought they knew about the Messiah. It was troublesome to them. In fact, we know it was because in Matthew's account, Peter immediately starts to argue with Jesus. He says, never, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. Remember that? Jesus, get behind me, Satan. So immediately after that exchange, in the midst of all that confusion, in the midst of of, of this, this, this thing that Jesus said about rejection and suffering and death, ringing in their ears and confusing them, right in the midst of that, Jesus takes them on the mountain, and there God supernaturally authenticates. This Jesus is my son. You must listen to what he says. Fred Craddock says it well. He says, hereafter, speaking of his coming passion and before turning toward Jerusalem, Jesus receives heaven's confirmation again. However, on this occasion, three apostles hear the voice, a voice that says, the talk of death which they have recently heard 
does not abrogate, does not contradict Jesus' messiahship. The one who had announced to them that he must suffer, die, and be raised is indeed God's son and is to be obeyed. Craddock continues, this is a mountaintop experience, but not the kind about which persons write glowingly of sunrises, soft breezes, warm friends, music, and quiet time. On this mountain, the subject is death and the frightening presence of God reduces those present to silence. God demands that we listen to his son, especially when he speaks of the cross, the thing we least want to hear, Not the kind of Messiah we want and not the kind of road we want to travel. But as Jesus himself warns us, if you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son, and if you do not have the Son, you don't have the Father. There is no knowledge of the Father apart from the Son. God demands you listen to the Son. This morning I know it's pretty easy in our culture to believe in God of some kind. It's really difficult to speak of Jesus. That makes you a fanatic. But as Jesus warns us, you can't have it both ways. To know God demands that you listen to the Son, without whom we have no salvation. There's a sense in which this transfiguration of Jesus is in capsule form the whole gospel. Here we have Jesus' baptism, remembered when God spoke similar words. Here we have Jesus' fulfillment of the law and prophets affirmed as Moses and Elijah are there. Here we have Jesus suffering in death, predicted, for that's the context in which this happens. Here we have Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and glory tasted before the time would come. It's in capsule form, the whole gospel. So it's appropriate that we talk about the transfiguration on this morning that we come to the Lord's table. Because here at the table, we also have the gospel in capsule form. The bread representing to us the body of Jesus given to us. The wine representing to us the the blood of Christ shed as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And And the repeated command and call to come again and again remembering him and receiving him and proclaiming him until he comes and we see him in his glory like the apostles tasted that day on the mountain. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we don't really have much understanding of what took place on the mountain that day. We have not seen Jesus in his glory.
like the apostles did. But Lord, the fact that it doesn't fit our patterns very well either, may it not be reason to reject what you've said. But Lord, may we hear that what you're saying to us is the good news of the gospel. The gospel that, of the cross, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the glory to come. Oh Lord, give us hearts to listen, to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.